Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. It's great to be with you tonight. I'm told I was here seven years ago. I mean, I knew I was here, but I didn't know when it was. So, uh, time passes quickly, and I don't remember much about this time, but much has happened uh, in Egypt since then, and I'm happy that Rebecca is with me tonight to share with you. We will share stories of pain and grief, but all stories of joy and challenge and God's presence. The light to Egypt, the light of the gospel, is what we have seen and in unlikely places. Now, this afternoon, I just happened to read in the Irish Times about my bookshop, the bookshop of a Bible site in Egypt that was burned. Um, a full-page report on it, and it said, Christian shop burned. You will see it. If you, have, if you have that newspaper, look at it. I had never seen this picture. Asyut is about 500 miles from where we live, and I had never seen the devastation in that way. This afternoon, I received some videos and we'll now begin with one of these, um, a bit of a picture of what has happened in Cairo uh, on August the 14th. Um, very sad situation. Can we begin with that, um, please? Okay. I don't know where I'm supposed to aim it, but there we go. You can see these two children um, praying in one of the burned churches. They were burned. 73 Christian institutions were burned on August the 14th. I'll say more about it later on. And now we're going to see um, the Bible Society bookshops and what's happening there. I think we need that video to get going. Johnny there will get it going. While it's preparing, you're going to see pictures of our bookshop before they were burned and pictures of a bookshop after they were burned and uh, um, give you an idea. These two bookshops that were burned in Upper Egypt, here's one of them. And, um, it's one of our nicest bookshops. They wrote on it a few days before, Islamic. These were the shops they marked uh, that they would tear. This is a lady who was living across from our bookshop, filmed uh, the protesters as they came to destroy the bookshop. Normal people, ordinary people, but very violent. You see, they just broke in the window. The glass is breaking, and they're beginning to get out the furniture and the Bibles, and they'll burn them out in the street. Now we've been around as a Bible society for 130 years. We've never had so much as a stone thrown at a shop window in 130 years. So this was the first attack, a very painful one. In one day, all these other churches. In that uh, film, you're also going to see some of the churches that were burnt. A missionary boat at the end of a show, uh, of a slide of a film uh, that's been around 100 years that the Presbyterian missionaries used to evangelize Upper Egypt and became a conference center, and you will see it being burned. You see the people pillaging the bookshop? I hadn't seen this video until this afternoon it was sent to me from Egypt. You don't see this on CNN, you don't see it on BBC. It's the news that is edited out of what is happening by these peaceful demonstrators in Egypt that the West is supporting so strongly. I think this video, if we can get it out in the media, shows that this is anything but peaceful. Um, there are, you will see in a minute, 
um, statistics on people in Egypt, there are probably 10 million Christians in the country of Egypt out of 85 million people. Um, we've lived since the first century uh, when the gospel came to Egypt. We've lived peacefully uh, in many ways. Um, the population of Egypt, um, huh, our, our video skipped, but that's okay. The population of Egypt is 83 million and um, there are um, 10 million Christians, I said 73 million Muslims. Um, 1,500 Orthodox churches, you can see the number of the churches, I won't take time uh, to explain them. Now, God is at work in Egypt and Rebecca will begin telling you a little bit of how we see the situation and what, what we're gonna share with you. Rebecca, if you come up. Hello, everybody. It's really great to be here with you all. Um, I really mean that from my heart. It's really great to be here with you all. And I must admit that it's also great right now not to be in Egypt. Um, we've been there all summer, and it's been a really hard and stressful summer. And But because of our children and grandchildren, God has kept us sane. And um, it was just really great to have a chance to leave for just 12 days and come and just feel at home among your friendly Irish people. And also feel as though we're not just constantly being stressed. Yeah, so thank you for inviting us. As you know, the theme of Bangor Worldwide is lights to the world. This does reflect the fact that we are living in a dark world which is desperate for the light. And, which yet, and yet sometimes when the light comes to it, it just snuffs it out as fast as it can. Kind of like you saw those guys doing at the bookstore, just burning up the Bibles and snuffing out the light. And over the past 33 years in Egypt, we have seen, in spite of all this, God's light entering in some really amazingly dark places, but entering in, in miraculous ways and lighting up the place. Now, we're going to talk to you tonight about a bit of what happened in the past, the distance past, bit distant past in Egypt and what's happening today, and maybe a bit about what might be happening in the future. What we're going to try to do is to, to um, highlight some key principles that we've learned during our 33 years of living in Egypt, and that maybe will be relevant to you in the context in which you are ministering tonight and these days. Let me just mention the three to you here. I think I'm supposed to be actually doing this yeah keep going okay um, the first one that we want to talk about and this is what I'm going to especially be talking about is investing in people including those that others consider unpromising. the second one is turning obstacles into opportunities 
And the third one is committing for the long haul. We'll come back to them later on. But right now, what I'm going to read to you is a very special passage of the Bible. It is Isaiah chapter 19. All of Isaiah 19 talks about Egypt. It also talks about Israel and Syria, but it mostly focuses on Egypt. And the verses that we're going to read to you are some of the favorite of Christians living in Egypt today. Verses 18 to the end of the chapter, which are 25. So, Isaiah 19, 18 to 25. Is this on the... Should I be putting this forward? It's not... Okay, I thought maybe it was printed in front of you. But I will read it instead. Or you can use your pew Bibles. I believe you've got pew Bibles there, don't you? Yes. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. And that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender. And he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians will go to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You will have noticed that five times in this passage, the phrase, in that day, is repeated. And most Bible commentators believe that there will be multiple fulfillments for that day. It was not one day, but many days. God has had his day several times through Egyptian history for Egypt. So we're going to look at the first translation of a Bible done in Egypt in about 300 BC. We're going to look at the establishment of a church in Egypt. We're going to look at some fulfillments today, what we see happening. And we're going to try to mention something about dreams for the future. So it says, in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Jehovah Almighty. Now that was inconceivable at the time Isaiah wrote it. Israel, uh, Egypt was the big enemy of Israel to the south, like Assyria was to the north. So Egypt was the enemy. 
for anyone in a small little Israel at that time to believe that that very powerful world power led by these powerful pharaohs with their very complex religion that influenced the whole world, that that nation would swear allegiance to the God of Israel, to Jehovah, was completely inconceivable. One of those cities, it says, will be called the city of the sun. In Greek, it's Heliopolis. Now, the Jewish, there was a Jewish minority in Alexandria, and they spoke Greek, about 300 BC. A very large number of Jews lived in Alexandria. And Ptolemy II, the pharaoh of Egypt at that time, uh, agreed with them to fund the first translation of the Bible. And the first time ever, the scriptures which were given in Hebrew and people read them in Hebrew were translated into Greek so that the Greek children who didn't know Hebrew, the, 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 I mean the, the Jewish children who didn't know Hebrew, many of the Jews who lived in Alexandria could understand the Bible in their language. Now I work for Bible Society, many people are in many agencies, and our whole purpose is to provide the Bible in the language of the people. Well, in Egypt, the Bible for the first time was translated, and it was translated into the common language of the people of the Mediterranean basin into Greek. Maybe that was what Isaiah was saying, that they would talk the language of Canaan because those in Canaan did talk Greek, did speak Greek at the time. The New Testament was also written in Greek, and many of the oldest and best papyri of the New Testament, the manuscripts of the New Testament that we seek and are used by Bible scholars were found in Egypt. So Egypt has had a great role in terms of Bible translation. That great country that was anti, very much anti the God of Israel, yet was used to preserve the Bible, to translate the Bible. In that day, verse 19 goes on and says, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. Alexandria was a major intellectual city of Egypt, and maybe that's why. Um, that could have been where in the heart of Egypt. And the monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. Now God did send a young man to tell them about their savior and defender. J young John Mark, who had streaked home naked the night Jesus was arrested, had deserted Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip, had caused the first major rift in the New Testament church, the dropout missionary. And one of our themes is looking to people who are unlikely candidates unlikely candidate for mission work. John Mark would have been the least likely person you'd think of, could evangelize the great nation of Egypt. And yet God used him as a young man. He walked the streets of Alexandria, his sandal broke, he went to fix the cobbler, ended up evangelizing the cobbler. The cobbler became the first pastor of the first Christian church in Egypt, and the gospel spread like wildfire in Egypt. The, the yearning of the ancient Egyptians was to reach eternal life. They built the biggest monuments in the world to preserve the body of a pharaoh for the day of resurrection. And they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in life ever after, but only for those who were mummified and preserved in that way. And John Mark came along and said, 
Whosoever will may come. The gospel is free for all. And the Egyptian people, as a mass, responded. Egypt became a Christian nation. Alexandria became the center of Christian theology. And the big debates of the second and third century were led by Egyptians, where Athanasius, the Egyptian bishop, argued with Arius, the heretic, for the deity of Christ. And the Trinity, the definition of a Trinity, we have the Trinitarian creed, is that of Athanasius the Egyptian, all because young John Mark had the courage to pick up again and go and start the church in Egypt. Now, Rebecca is going to share of something about what we see as fulfillments in this day. We spoke of in that day, the, the time before Christ. Then we talk about the time in, after Christ in the early church in Egypt. Now we're going to hear what's happening now in Egypt. I work in the garbage village, or one of the garbage villages in Cairo, the Mukattam garbage village, which actually I just met a couple here tonight who have been there. I bet you more than one couple or one person tonight has been there because it's becoming kind of famous. But it wasn't always famous. In fact, when I first went there in 1982, I had a very hard time finding somebody who knew where it was and could take me there. Because in those days, you see, it looked like this, and nobody wanted to go there. It was just full of garbage and dirty little kids and animals. None of the houses were built properly. It was really depressing. It stunk. That's the way it looked in 1982, and a bit before that, actually, when a certain young man was used by God to bring the gospel to the garbage village. The garbage people collected trash from door to door in modern Cairo. Well, in those days, it wasn't modern. Nowadays, it is. We have over 20 million people in Cairo now. Um, at first, they were just collecting the trash by donkey carts. Now they actually have trucks, small trucks. They sorted the garbage then by hand, and you can see them doing it still today. It's still the same way. In fact, that picture that you see with me in it was just taken last summer. But in those days, that was where they lived. They lived down on the floor on the same level with their garbage. And their children played in the garbage. They ate the garbage. No wonder they thought of themselves as garbage. And they knew nothing of God's love for them. They didn't have any idea. Although they were Christian in name, which meant in Egypt that they had a cross tattooed on their wrist from the time they were babies. In spite of that, they knew nothing of God's love for them because they had no way of knowing. They had no Bibles, they had no churches, they had no priests, they had no, no pastors, they had, um, well, they had nothing, really. No way of knowing that God loved them. And so they just called themselves Christians. It meant that they weren't Muslims. That's all it meant to them. Then this young man that I referred to before, in those days he was young, but don't forget, he went to the garbage village over 40 years ago. And he believed in the message of the gospel. He believed in evangelism. He had no social program whatsoever, 
But he thought it was really important that people know the Lord, and he figured that if they knew the Lord and they got filled with the Holy Spirit, then God would take care of the outside changes that they needed in their lives, such as clean water, such as places to use to go to the bathroom, things like that. And in fact, that's actually what happened. What happened when Father, whom we now call Father Simon or Pastor Simon, what happened was that um, there was a very rapid response on the part of the people because the Lord really spoke to their hearts and they started getting what we call saved. And they started getting changed. But this change was a change from the inside to the out, not changing their circumstances first, hoping that then they'd get changed inside. No, changing their insides first, filling their hearts with the Holy Spirit. And he then changed them to become different and to want to make their village a cleaner and safer and better place for them and their kids to live. So that's what happened. The social services followed the conversions. And the amazing thing to me as, actually I'm a medical social worker, the amazing thing to me as a social worker is that what social workers try to do and psychiatrists and psychologists and everybody tries to do very, for a very, very, very long time and they often don't succeed happened in that garbage village in one generation. The whole village was transformed and the garbage village that I go to twice a week now is so different from the one that I first went to 31 uh, years ago. Their lives centered around the church. That was all they had at first. In fact, they built it themselves. They didn't have it. And there's some pictures here of what it was like in those days. Here's a family of new believers in the church. Um, and then from then, they started thinking of how they could better bring the gospel to their village. And therefore, they wanted the church. They wanted a school. They wanted a way of the kids, their kids learning to read the Bible and how they could help their village to be a, bit, a better place. So they brought, like I've written here, medical uh, services, uh, a hospital eventually was built, a big beautiful school is now standing there. Uh, they started providing jobs for women other than simply riding the garbage carts or sorting the garbage. And then in time, the Lord worked miracles so that water was brought into the village, running water. A sewage system was built, electricity was brought in, and telephones. And another great thing that happened is that they started building their homes above the garbage. And when that happened, as you can imagine, their homes became much more hygienic places to live in. And this is what the garbage village looks like now. Kind of different, eh? Mind you, I still have a very hard time driving through the garbage village when I go up there because it wasn't built for trucks, it was built for donkey carts. <clears throat> like it said, like I said, the church was built, the church was planted. But was that the end of the story? No, because God had greater and bigger, better things for the garbage people than simply one church down in their village. 
He then helped them to start discovering and developing the caves that were above the village that they hadn't even known about before. And it basically did, like it says here, transform the village in the sense of putting it on the map, letting people know that the garbage village was there before it had simply been a ghetto for garbage people. And that cave now seats 3,000. There's scriptures all over the cliff walls, big, beautiful statues, some of them life-size, and, and sculptures right into the limestone of the walls and the cliffs of the village. And we now have seven uh, churches in the garbage village. Five of them are right up there in the cave church area. And this is our Father Simon today. This is the cathedral that you're going to be seeing later on a bit more. And you're going to see what the cathedral looks like when it's full of people. Pardon me? Yeah. It has become the biggest church of the Middle East. The garbage people now attend and work in and minister in and reach out from the biggest church in the Middle East. Amen. Now another dream that came true that was, was a dream of mine that I was involved in for many years was building the center of love for the handicapped and disabled people of the garbage village, especially the children. And I'll just show you a few, very few pictures of what it's like there. We haven't finished building it yet, by the way, but we've finished five floors and we're using them. Um, the physical therapy room, classes for all ages of kids, vocational training, in the summertime, also, we have summer camps. We have camps for the, for the disabled people of the Garbage Village. And these are just a few pictures of our summer camps. And this, to me, has been a great dream to see revealed because we have, uh, I mean, to see accomplished because we have a lot of people in the Garbage Village who are disabled, handicapped, um, both by birth and by accidents that happen in the, through the Garbage Village trade. So you see how the most unlikely group in Egypt, the down and outers, the oppressed and hardly noticed and despised garbage collectors, when the gospel got into their lives, they became a message to the whole world. Today when tourists, Christian tourists come to Egypt and other agencies, they say we're going to go and see the pyramids, we're going to see the Egyptian museum and the cave churches. And that big cave Rebecca showed you that seats 25,000 people, the largest church in the Middle East. Sometimes it's full, and you'll see a picture of it later. Rebecca's center, that she says, the center of love, is the best built building in the whole garbage village. You saw a picture of that eight-story building. And Rebecca says so often how excited she is that the poor, despised garbage collectors have the best building in the garbage village. So they are the least of the least, because within the garbage village, handicapped people, disabled people, um, terminally sick people, are the least of the least. And they now have one of the best facilities. God does wonderful things. When we believe that he can have a purpose for those whom others would consider insignificant, and we heard that in what was said earlier 
about the ministry in North Africa. So it's exciting for us to see that God is working through unlikely candidates in this way. Now, in verse 18, it says that one of the cities will be called the city of the sun, which in Greek is Heliopolis. It's on the town where um, there was a big temple, and Joseph, when he became ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh married him to the daughter of the priest of On, of Heliopolis. Rebecca and I happen to live in Heliopolis. The Bible Society of Egypt happens to be in Heliopolis. So we believe that's another fulfillment today of what God is doing in Heliopolis. Now, not only did we want to share with you the principle of reaching unlikely people, unattractive people by other people's viewpoint, but also that when we see an obstacle through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can turn that obstacle into an opportunity. And as we face challenges every day in Egypt, it's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to give up. It's very easy to believe that we cannot uh, evangelize or bring a gospel in that country. But what we have learned at the Bible Society in the last many years is to overcome the restrictions. What are some of these restrictions to Christian activity in Egypt? There's a limit uh, on church buildings and repairs, and it still continues. So we get very excited when a new church gets built. We get very excited when the Bible Society bookshops, like the two bookshops, actually the video stopped before showing you the destruction in the other bookshop as well. When these lovely bookshops on the street get established and become beacons of light in these cities, a place where Christians from all denominations can meet together, get by the scriptures and have fellowship and believe it's theirs. It belongs to me, regardless of whether I'm Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, this is my Bible bookshop. So whether you have a church or a Bible bookshop or a Christian institution, that's been very important. The other, uh, because it's very difficult. The other thing is all our material, Christian material is censored. It's very difficult to get it past the Egyptian censors, particularly printed material and audiovisual material. And finally, it's very hard to get licensed both for these materials before we sell them. We need five licenses to sell a DVD and from different offices. It takes a long, long time and a lot of money for one DVD to be able to sell it legally. And we as a Bible society work above board. What I'm saying here is known. There's no secret. The authorities know what we're doing. We are the supplier of the Bible to the 10 million Christians. And um, they wouldn't want to mess with us because then you get 10 million people upset. So, uh, but um, we have challenges that we face. And so the principle we've came up, come up with is when we face an obstacle, we think of an opportunity. When the door is closed, we're going to find a window to jump through. So let's look at some of these. So we are restricted in giving out free scriptures. And so as you saw there, I went a bit too quickly. We have an ingenious way now, since we cannot give out free scriptures publicly, we found an ingenious way to evangelize the country using scriptures. Can you figure out what that is? Well, we're very intelligent. We sell them. <laughs> you see, when we sell the Bible to someone, the person comes from his home, comes to one of our bookshops, he knows it's a Christian bookshop. He walks in, he knows he's buying a Bible, he gets money out of his pocket and buys the Bible. That cannot be construed of as evangelism or positivism. It's business. We are selling to someone who wants to buy. The fact that we sell very cheaply, the fact that we advertise very widely is uh, still not a problem. So we've that big obstacle of people saying, we get people every year, well-meaning, uh, Christian evangelists coming from the West and starting to distribute scriptures on the streets. They get arrested, put in jail, sent back home, and they say, I've been persecuted in Egypt. 
the same time they do that, we sell 7,000 New Testaments to non-Christians, and we don't get arrested. I'm in front of you here, and we make some money on it, too. <laughs> so when there is a, an obstacle, we think of an opportunity. Another obstacle which we face, um, and this is, these are all the outlets we have by way where we sell things from every kind of place you can imagine the scriptures are being sold. Um, we can only sell from Christian outlets. And uh, a few years back, we only had three bookshops, and we felt very limited. So we determined to not let that obstacle uh, limit us, and the opportunity was we just multiplied outlets all over the country. We now have 15 bookshops on the street, and during the summer, we have kiosks, book tables, everything all over the country at every occasion. One of our most popular places in a gas station between Cairo and Alexandria. 20,000 cars go on that road every day, and they have to stop to get gas and go to the washroom. And there in front of them is a Bible Society booth where they can buy scriptures. This is a picture of some of our, um, some of our various outlets all over. The middle right one is that bookshop you saw being destroyed. Uh, very sad. And the middle left one completely is the other bookshop. They were destroyed uh, a week Wednesday on August the 14th. But we've been able to share the gospel legally, openly, in this country, and we thank God for it. Now, we're not allowed to proselytize, as I said earlier, but there's no law against advertising. <laughs> so we are imitators. People say you're very smart. I say, I'm not smart, I cheat. So I figure out, what does Pizza Hut do? What do other uh, people do? And so um, we imitate them, and we put billboards up, we provide home delivery of scriptures, we, uh, we advertise in newspapers. Everything that free market enterprise does, we do because we are a business that sells the Bible, and our staff get a commission on their sales and need to make money, and when someone tells them you can't put an ad, they give them a big sob story of how they have to make their living and have to sell more Bibles, and eventually the guy gets feeling sorry for them and puts in their ad. And of course, uh, in a time when the people who are putting your ads make a lot of money, so they want your money. So it's a, it's a very, sort of, it's a win-win situation. It's not easy. I don't give you the impression that any of these things are easy, but I'm saying that when we see an obstacle, we try to turn it into an opportunity, and that really uh, is the way we've operated. Now, one of our biggest ministries is to children. 40% of, uh, of Egyptians are under 15. Churches are desperate for programs to reach children. The Coptic Orthodox Church is probably the most biblical church in the world. They believe in the Bible. They teach the Bible. Every pastor has a Bible study once a week teaching his kids the Bible. So we're in a country where the main church is Bible-centered. So they desperately want the Bibles. We give free Bibles to Christians in churches. We can do that. Um, 100,000 Bibles every year, children's Bibles, to grade seven students each year. They're usually distributed through the churches. We can't distribute them mainly through the uh, schools. In some schools we can, but there's many opportunities. Then we have these festivals for children, and I want you to see one of them just to give you an idea of, of uh, getting the mood. Let's hope that video works. It does better than the other one. Best made plans of mice and men. Okay, Johnny, I'll leave it to you. Anyway, some of you, oops, uh, that's not our video, by the way. Here it goes. And the sound to it, maybe you can raise the sound. We did not know that we, we start did not gold know until much later. Kindle is a friendly line. We tell stories to children, 
He usually talks about a biblical character, and in that character is a Christian virtue. The man who translated it into colloquial Arabic got extremely excited, and he said, "You've got something that can transform children today." Was yet to come. Was yet anyway. Anyway, I can't act what it is, but these festivals for children with thousands of children attending. Um, last year we had about 200 of these festivals, about 300, no, sorry, 300 festivals with 200,000 children all across Egypt. And you can imagine the excitement and the energy of these children meeting together around the Bible story, around some scripture plays, uh, excited about the Bible. And we thank God that children can interact with God's word and others too. Now, one of the questions we've been asked, Rebecca and I, we've been here, what's the future of Egypt? What is really happening in Egypt? I showed you the video at the beginning of the destruction of these um, bookshops. Alongside them, there were destruction of churches, of Christian buildings. Um, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church said the following very moving quote. He said, if the price we as Christians have to pay in Egypt is the destruction of our properties so that the res ultimate result becomes an Egypt where Christians and Muslims can live together in freedom, where there can be the, 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 the kind of peace we're dreaming of, we're willing to accept the painful loss of these institutions. We feel the same as a Bible society, because as you saw the picture of that bookshop being destroyed, you lost the myth, the other story that is being told you of the media, that these Muslim Brotherhood people are peaceful people. The reason the government did not want to disperse that city, which by the way was paralyzing all of Cairo. If you had in a major city in the West, people sitting for 48 days in the middle of a main square, paralyzing the whole city, not allowing people to go to their jobs, not allowing people to go to their homes, you would not call that peaceful as the Western press seems to be doing. So when the, the government was, was very hesitant, for 48 days we put up for the disruption of this because they said, the minute you disperse us, we're gonna burn Egypt. And so on Wednesday the 14th, they set in their pre-made plan. The sign you saw on our bookshop, which said Islamia, means Muslim, they had gone around marking the buildings they would destroy when the word came from Cairo. We're being dispersed, burn Egypt, and take the soft, um, targets first, the churches, the police stations, the museums, the government buildings, and big day of devastation. They overplayed their hand. And the world needs to know that these are violent people wanting to put in an agenda of political Islam in Egypt, which on June the 30th, 30 million Egyptians went to the street asking for the resignation of our president, seeing we do not want and most of them were Muslims that way, we do not want Egypt to turn into a militant Islamic Republic. We want Egypt to be a place where Christian and Muslim men and women, rich and poor, can live together in peace. And as we walk the streets uh, to demonstrate on June the 30th with Christ Egyptians from all walks of life, we knew that there's hope for Egypt. And then on the 26th of July, in response to a plea from the government to say, do you want us to disperse these disruptive people? More than that number went down. We live about 15 minutes away from a main place, one of the main places where the demonstrators met. Cars were parked two and three deep, that is double and triple parked on our street for people to park so they could walk 
to the demonstration to protest, saying we do not want these people to dominate Egypt. We want an Egypt of moderate Muslims, an Egypt where Muslim and Christian can get along together. This was so exciting and so encouraging. So as we're facing some troubles in Egypt now, as we're trying to oppose at a great price the implementation of an Islamic, a political Islamic agenda in Egypt, the majority of Egyptians, the majority of Muslims do not want that. That's so heartening for us as Christians. We thought we'd lost it. We thought that the majority of Egyptians wanted to go to a conservative Islamic agenda, and that's not so. So yes, there's a price to pay. But we're very grateful that the majority of Egyptians voted with their feet and are standing for that today. So we've talked about two principles, investing in people that others might consider unpromising, and turning obstacles into opportunities. A third one, which is very important, which really we don't have a whole lot to say about, except that it's not easy to do, <laughs> to commit for the long haul. You know, I was in Egypt for two years, the first two years, and I did nothing during that time except help to raise my two small children, and Ramaz was doing a lot of the raising in those days too, and try to learn Arabic. Oh my gosh, I thought I would die. I really, really honestly thought I would die, you guys. Arabic is really tough. And if you're going to go to countries like Muslim countries or Arabic-speaking countries, you got to learn it. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work. That means the long haul. I've known a lot of short-term missionaries coming through places like Egypt. I don't really believe that a short-termer can do a whole lot of good in a place like Egypt unless they come to a place like the garbage village where the people are mostly Christians already and they really need help with things like helping uh, to bathe chronically ill people in their homes or helping in the center of love to play with um, handicapped kids, disabled kids. In that case, we can really use short-termers because they don't have to learn Arabic. But if you really want to have an impact, there's one of two things you can do, an impact in, among Muslims. You can go for the long haul to a Muslim country if they let you in. Or you can stay right here in Ireland or Northern Ireland and work among Muslims right here. Now, you know, I was really struck today. I went to a bunch of charity shops right here in Belfast, I mean. And there were quite a few um, refugees down there. And I met a refugee woman from Kuwait. And because I speak Arabic, and she speaks obviously Arabic, I got to talk to her. It turned out that she's only been here three months. Her kids are still back in Kuwait. She cried when she told me about it. It turned out that she's never, ever seen a gospel before. At the end of our time together, and I helped her to buy a coat for the wintertime, 
I gave her a gospel in Arabic and I said, would you like to have this gospel? Have you ever heard the story of, and I use the word Ais al-Masih, which means it's the, it's the Quranic name for Jesus. And she said, no, I've never read that before. And I said, have you ever heard the story? I said, it's in the Quran too. Have you heard it in the Quran? And she says, oh yeah, I think I have, yeah. And she was kind of vague, you know. I got the feeling she might not have even read that much of the Quran. And I said, well, if you'd like the story, here it is. But if you don't want it, it's okay. It's up to you, you know, because I didn't want to push her. This was her very first time. And she said, um, she said, this book tells me the story of Aisha Masih. And I said, yeah. It tells it to you, because I like to give the Gospel of Luke to Muslims, because it starts with a story that they know and believe in, which is the virgin birth of Jesus, and it ends with the resurrection, which of course they don't believe in at all, but meanwhile they've gotten to believe it more because they've read all about his, about his uh, miracles that they also believe in. Anyway, the important part is she didn't take it. She didn't take it. I wasn't surprised and I wasn't upset because I know that that woman is going to think about that book and she's going to think about the fact that she never had one before. She's going to think about the fact that she actually held it in her hand, her hand. And one of these days, God is going to visit her again, probably through a dream or a vision of Jesus. And she's going to start searching in a big way for Jesus. And somebody else will give her a gospel. Somebody else will tell her about Jesus. Maybe it'll be one of you people who are here. Maybe by then she'll have learned English and she'll be able to talk to you and you'll be able to talk to her, befriend her, maybe invite her into your homes. I really believe that the greatest place to evangelize Muslims is right in your own country where they have come and they want to learn your language and they want to learn your culture. And you can do it for the long haul and stay right here if God doesn't ask you to go somewhere else. So that is the long haul as well as that is the um, the part about the future fulfillment. And this is what we've got to end with. Ramans and I are not God, obviously. We're not even prophets, very obviously. We don't know the future, but we feel that we're living in the midst of unprecedented changes in Egypt. We feel like what God began with John Mark in the first century AD, and then has continued through the years, and specifically, especially in the last, let's say, three, four decades in the Muslim world, he is going to continue and he's going to uh, bring to completion in different countries such as Egypt. Now most Christians whom I've talked to believe that God is in charge of the situations, the conditions that are going on in Egypt now. And that he is actually using the very hard, dark ones to bring about his purpose for Egypt. Most Christians, Egyptian Christians that I've talked to, believe that God is blessing Egypt.
But they are beginning to realize that we may have to suffer in order to receive that full blessing. Let me just read these last three verses to you one last time. The Lord will strike Egypt with the plague. He will strike them and he will heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians will go to Assyria. That's probably talking about Syria, modern-day Syria. We're not sure. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. That we are sure about. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Amen. Amen. Let me just show you, if it works, a video of 11-11-11. That means November 11th. 2011, when there was prayer, there were prayer meetings in the Garbage Village cave churches, all of the cave churches, of probably about 70,000 people, between 50 and 70,000. I've written 50 here because I tend to be more conservative, but the people who organized it claimed that there were probably 70. And just listen to them singing the praises of God and you'll be encouraged to believe that God truly is blessing Egypt. Orthodox priest in the front there. They were the main organizers of the event because the churches in the garbage village are basically evangelistic Coptic Orthodox churches. And that's another thing I say amen to. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.